0: Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of free trade. And, Richard, you know, we've been living through a couple of decades, really, where there seems to have been something of a bipartisan consensus that free trade was a good thing, that Democrats have been drifting away from that more quickly than Republicans over the past couple of decades, still sort of a a minority position until fairly recently. But now you've got Donald Trump, the Republican frontrunner for president, coming out strongly against international trade deals, Bernie Sanders standing much the same note on the left, and Hillary Clinton starting to drift in that direction as well. So before you and I get into the specifics of sort of the current controversies here – Why don't we do this? Why don't you give us sort of the short pricey of the first principles case that classical liberals have traditionally made for why free trade is a good thing?
1: Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, I think this all goes back to Adam Smith and the wealth of nations. And the way in which you understand international relationships is always to understand them in relationship to ordinary uh, transactions between two human beings or two corporations within a given country. And the key principle that one devises under these circumstances is the principle of – basically comparative advantage, which rises from the division of labor. Uh, So what Smith was able to demonstrate is you had two people who lived completely autonomously, making everything for themselves. They would be worse off than if each person decided to make that thing for which he had the comparative advantage over the other, and then the two of them traded. And it was generally a pretty optimistic story that took place under these circumstances, because both sides were left better off by virtue of the trade um, in question. Uh, When this gets Once carried over into international relationships, the argument is that nations often have advantages the way people do and a system of free trade that is one without hindrance, tariff barriers, quantitative restrictions and so forth means that each country will produce that thing for which it has the greatest relative aptitude. They will then swap goods and each side will benefit from what's going on. What's nice about the principle of free trade is it doesn't only work for dyadic relationships, that is relationships between two people. If you have a huge economy with all sorts of people in all sorts of different nations, uh, the more the merrier because when you have free trade across an entire system, it means that there are many more choices for firms in any given country uh, to do business with firms in other countries and it turns out that it kind of cycles back on itself in a very nice way Uh, so that if you are able to sell in foreign markets, it may well be that some of the components in your products will come from the very markets to which you want to sell. And if you have an active market in components, an active market in finished goods, an active market in agriculture, an active market in intellectual property, what this will do is tend to rise all ships. It will, of course, like any form of trade, result in competitive losses. If I were in a position in my own country where I were the dominant seller of horseshoes and somebody comes along with a better, a horseshoe or better even an automobile, or what will happen is the old trader will lose out and the new ones will take over. In the domestic market, we've always taken the position that these kinds of shifts in fortunes are a necessary price to pay in order to improve the aggregate. And now in international trade, the argument is if it turns out that there are any domestic losers, the whole system has to be questioned or shut down. And that is a ruinous situation. There is no way in which you could get the overall advantages from free trade and try to create a world in which every firm turns out to be a winner. In the long run, that may well be the place, but in the short run, dislocation is a necessary part of a free economy.
0: Okay, Richard, let me get you to address some of the criticisms that we're hearing a lot today. Bernie Sanders, sounding a note that the left has been hitting for a while. This is from an interview on Meet the Press last fall. Quote, we're in a race to the bottom where our wages are going down. Is all of that attributable to trade? No. Is a lot of it? Yes. And then a few sentences later, I do not want American workers to compete against people in Vietnam who make 56 cents an hour for a minimum wage. Close quote. You hear that a lot, Richard. Why would we want an even playing field with people who can consistently undercut us on wages, on regulations, et cetera? Isn't it inevitable that those people are going to eat our lunch?
1: No. I mean, what happens is it turns out, suppose they supply us with goods at these very low prices. Um, When we get that, now we have two benefits on the domestic side. One, we may have consumable goods, which we could get for a very low price. And so the people who essentially get lower wages are also people who are paying lower prices. In addition, what happens is you could take some of these low-priced goods from overseas and incorporate them into products that you can sell overseas at a lower price, precisely because your components are good. Uh, so there 's nothing about this system about free trade which says that you 're necessarily a loser because it turns out that even if workers lose consumers and firms start to gain now what also happens is is that the people who are earning fifty six cents an hour doing certain kinds of work overseas are not necessarily doing the same kinds of work that could take place in the United States uh, so you have somebody earning very nominal wages in Vietnam and you try to put them into competition with Americans who are very good. At car uh, precision tools and, and advanced manufacturing there 's no way that hiring ten people at you know fifty dollars an hour let 's say um, is going to substitute for one good American machinist who can do the work in this particular country. And it's also important to understand that if you actually want to look at the manufacturing jobs, which seem to be the bellwether, in those states where in fact you have generally good local climates, the number of manufacturing jobs is increasing. And in fact, it's probably true nationwide that we now have more of these positions than we had before. Uh, What happens is when you're talking about situations where the differential wages, these people are starting to produce differential goods. And it could easily be the case that if you try to produce certain of the goods that are cheap goods that you get from overseas, domestically you would get nobody to do it. There's also another answer which I think has to be taken into account which is many of the wages that you see in the United States are artificially high uh, because these are people who are protected by strong union rules of one kind or another or protective tariffs. And what happens is these wages are not sustainable in the face of competition and so when things come in from overseas it turns out to be highly disruptive. In fact, that's one of the advantages of a system of free trade. What it does in effect is it allows the prices them to point out to various countries and states that uh, their particular modes of production are inefficient. And since the new goods come in and the old people go out to make goods elsewhere, what they have to do is they have to fix things up domestically in order to remain in competition with people overseas. If you shoot the messenger by making free trade impossible, what you do is you strengthen the monopoly interest that you have at home and you reduce the likelihood of corrective action starting to take place. Uh, so what happens is somebody like, Bernie Sanders is always an alarmist. If he understood the way in which the system would work, he would not make these kinds of claims. Um, And so I think those are the first and perhaps the most essential ways to do it. There are other variations that take place in terms of innovation and the like, uh, but we could talk about them later if you want.
0: I want to turn now to Donald Trump for a minute and touch on one of the arguments that he's making. It, It relates to your most recent column, although you didn't specifically talk about it there. Donald Trump routinely points to Our trade deficit with countries like China and Mexico and he talks about it in terms of us losing money. In fact, I'll give you the quote here. I don't mind – this is Trump. I don't mind trade wars when we're losing $58 billion a year to Mexico we're losing so much with Mexico and China. With China, we're losing $500 billion a year. That statistic, by the way, is, is a little high relative to the actual number. But is that the right way to think about trade deficits, Richard?
1: No. I mean, look, whenever you have multiple countries, some of them are going to be running surpluses and some of them are being running deficits. You don't want to assume that either of these countries is out or gaining the full amount of the difference. What happens is, another way to look at it, is to assume that the Chinese think that the investment climate in the United States, States is sufficiently good that what they do is they manage to put $58 billion into this country in order to produce various kinds of goods. And, you know, having a trade deficit is not necessarily a bad thing. It shows that you are capable of attracting investments from, from overseas. And, you know, you also have to understand that if his argument is correct, then any country that has a trade deficit with the United States is going to be able to use exactly the same kind of anti free trade rhetoric that Donald Trump does and we will be in the loser. What is so striking about the way in which these arguments are made inside the United States is they're completely egotistical. Free trade is only good when it's good for the United States. We want export subsidies because it helps the United States, which it does not in my view. And we don't care what happens overseas. If you start taking that kind of egotistical attitude at a national level, what you're going to do is create a true disaster, namely start to create trade wars. They will start to put up tariffs against your goods, just as you put up tariffs against yours. And if you want to find one thing that basically led to a worldwide depression in the 1930s, the Smoot-Hawley tariff was perhaps that – And the interesting thing about the tariff is it certainly had heavy costs inside the United States, but the worldwide costs were even greater in terms of the fact that total levels of international trade went down by a third or a half. And one of the things that one should remember is the tariff was put in place in 1930, the rise of Hitler took place in 1933, Uh, the whole dislocation inside the 1930 period in Europe and in Asia is largely attributable to the fact uh, when you start having trade wars and, and resentments. People take political action in order to firm up their position. Uh, Trade brings with it peace. Trade wars bring with it uh, wars of that other kind in which sometimes you start to fire real live ammunition.
0: Richard, one of the difficulties that comes with defending free trade, like a lot of free market principles actually, is that In a lot of cases, the costs are felt a lot more acutely than the benefits. At least they're more visible. I want to read you something from Megan McArdle, libertarian-ish writer at Bloomberg View. This is what she wrote recently. Quote, free traders, and I include myself, have often sounded too glib about the offsetting benefits of cheap imports. Cheap imports are great, but people value work and the ability to build some sort of reasonably predictable, stable economic future more than they do cheap flat panel televisions. With effects this large, the cost to people who are forced into economic precariousness by permanent labor market changes is larger in human welfare terms than the benefits – of affordable electronics. What do you make of that argument?
1: Well, I think the argument is fundamentally flawed because it assumes that all the difficulties that we have in the uh, overall situation are attributable to international situations. And this is a case of multiple causation. So the simplest observation that I would make is we have done everything within our power in the United States to make it extremely difficult for people with modest skills to get onto the job market and then to slowly improve. You know, for many years I have constantly said that things like the minimum wage laws, the various kinds of protections that you give people under Obamacare and so forth, what they do is they help those individuals who are lucky enough to climb on the job train. But they make these positions so onerous to employers that they automate away from them, hire more skilled lawyer um, workers, um, export um, jobs to other countries and so forth. If we really want to get a situation where we could create economic opportunity in the United States. We cannot assume, as that argument from Ms. McCardle assumes, that the domestic labor markets are absolutely hunky-dory. I think it goes without question that virtually every major intervention in these markets in the last several years has made it harder for people to hire workers. It has made it harder for people to start new businesses. And if you don't do either of those two things, you're going to have some kind of a real depression. And so what you need to do is to understand 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 that we can't assume that the United States is this perfect Eden. Everybody else is trying to corrupt us. What we have to do is to turn the spotlight inward and to understand, as we do not understand today, that we have made some humongous mistakes in virtually every one of these kinds of areas. So just to give you a simple point, if you announce that people are going to have to pay extensive coverage for Obamacare, if they have somebody working for them for more than 30 hours a week, what's going to happen is 29 hours are going to be the norm because the moment you add one more hour you're not going to add just another cost of eight ten, twelve, or fifteen dollars all of a sudden it's going to cost you another. Two or $3,000 a year uh, which turns out to be you know, another couple hundred hours that these people are going to have to be paid for and it's just not worth it. So over and over again what you want to do in the domestic market is to make them flexible enough so that when there's some exogenous shocks people will be able to move around and that is not the way the situation works today. Every time you want to hire somebody you have to go through this huge set of hoops. There are all sorts of restrictions on what you can do all sorts of papers to be formed all sorts of unemployment insurances to buy, and all sorts of difficulties in firing people, particularly members of minority groups, were protected so-called by the anti-discrimination laws when, in fact, their options are going to be limited. And so what I said in my Hoover column is begin by healing yourself. And I haven't seen any one of these people who talk about this system explain the very difficult state of the domestic market. Now, there are differences. One of the things that if you live in a place like Illinois that I do much of the year, it's my residence, uh, what you find out is it's losing jobs to everybody around it. And why is that? Because it has the worst system of workman's compensation, has extremely high real estate taxes and so forth. It has very strong unions and very strong uh, sort of opposition to the right to work laws and so forth. A lot of the jobs that are lost in Illinois are going to Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana, which are eating us for lunch. That's not a question of free trade across international. National barriers, that's a state which simply doesn't want to correct its own internal deficits. Bruce Rauner is doing a heroic job to try to fight this. Uh, but when you start looking at Michael Madigan and company inside the legislature inside Illinois, you realize just how enormous a problem we have. And these people always point to somebody else as being the source of their defect, and they never let the spotlight shine on themselves.
0: Final question that I'll pose to you. What role, if any, is there for government to smooth out the disruptions for people who do lose their jobs or their livelihoods in the free trade process?
1: Well, you know, we do have a system of unemployment insurance, a mixed blessing to be sure, and right now it doesn't differentiate between those people who lose jobs to international competition or those people who lose jobs to local competition or to change in industrial structure or change in preferences and so forth. And if people are in favor of doing this thing, then I think that this is the appropriate way in which to do it. What you do not want to do is to get yourself into this hopeless game where you look at somebody who's lost a job and say, hey... This job was lost to a Chinese company, so you get twice as many benefits as somebody who's lost a job to somebody in Alabama or Tennessee or some other southern state which seems to have more hospitable labor relationships. So there's a little that you can do to ease this, and I'm not sitting here saying that what you have to do once you believe in free trade is to abolish some system of unemployment compensation. It is worth noting, however, uh, that if you make the compensation levels too rich, it means that people become reluctant to go back to work. There is a serious moral hazard problem, and – Before they basically shortened the um, unemployment compensation period from 99 weeks down to under a year, I believe, there were just large numbers of people who preferred to stay out of work, collect their compensation, and fix up the house on non pecuniary income in order to game the system. Uh, So there's no free lunch in this. The world is filled with shortages, and it turns out that unemployment insurance is certainly a tool that you have to put on the table. um, But I think it would be a mistake to ratchet it up now that the free trade. Great issue is there. First best solution is to make it easier for people who lose jobs to get new jobs and one of the things that you do with high unemployment taxes is you tend to retard a little bit but a substantial bit nonetheless job mobility, which is the name of this game.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard and thank you to our listeners and remember you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org and you can follow him on Twitter. At Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.